I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll break down President Biden's recent meeting with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Plus, we'll explain why a dispute between two Korean battery makers could impact the auto industry. And we'll talk about the Biden administration continuing the Trump administration's tactics at the WTO. Stay tuned for all that and much, much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Bonjour, gentlemen. We have something Canadian to talk about today because President Biden and Mr. Trudeau met virtually. They talked, right? And they had some trade news that's worth discussing. So what about it? Well, look, uh, this is a very important alliance relationship. Uh, Canada is shares this massive undefended border, basically, with the United States. They have been a treaty ally throughout our history, basically, and are a very important economic partner. They've, they've been our largest trading partner for, for decades. And thanks to both U.S.-Canada Free Trade Agreement and then NAFTA and now USMCA, we make things together and sell them to each other in the world. So the, the, both economic and strategic relationship are vital. But they seem to have gotten along reasonably well and off to a good start, having gotten over some initial irritants like the suspension of the Keystone XL pipeline. Bill? Yeah, I hesitated there for a minute, Andrew. I thought you were going to want me to respond in French, which... Well, I thought you were going to. You know, everybody should know by now that Bill's mom was, of course, Canadian. And so Bill's got, you know, Bill's a bit of a Francophone and, you know... Not in the least. They came from the English... They came from London, (laughs) Ontario. (laughs) Not a lot of French speakers in London. No. Anyway, Scott's right. It was a happy meeting. Everybody was nice to each other, which is good. They seem to genuinely like each other. They've known each other from before. At the same time, it did not address specifically, you know, a single issue that's been on that's on the table. Trudeau didn't bring up any of the irritants. Biden didn't bring anything up. They just agreed to work together going forward. That's fine. It sounds like Keystone is sort of over, uh, which is probably good that the Canadians are not going to make a big deal of it because Biden has got a pretty firm position on it. I think what's not over is by America. The Canadians very much want it to be by North America, not by America. And that's been an important issue for them. They've been a victim, uh, virtually the only victim of, of some of our policies in the past. And uh, the whole point of NAFTA and now USMCA was to integrate the three North American economies. And if you're going to start out your term by saying we're going to go backwards and uh, disintegrate, if you will, by focusing on uh, national production, I think that's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem for the Mexicans too, but it'll very clearly be a problem uh, for the Canadians. So, but that was put off. There are dairy issues that were put off. There's, you know, lumber was put off. I mean, all the specifics that you usually get into when you have a trade talk got put off. But, you know, better to have a good start, I think, than, than a bad one. And they'll get to these things eventually. Well, can I ask a question? Why wouldn't it be by North America as opposed to by America? Like, why why is that a problem? I can make a case for why it ought to be by North America, just from terms of that's the way things are made now. 
and and that that is entirely consistent with U.S. policy. Given the alliance relationship, I see no security reason not to have it by North America. But this is a policy that's being formulated by the political side in the United States. And so they may come to a different set of conclusions. I think by America, excluding Canada gets really expensive really fast. Well, right. And we have love for our Canadian brothers and sisters. You know who you are out there, our Canadian brothers and sisters. Much love for you. So what is the political holdup here? Isn't this something that we could agree on here and maybe all be really happy with? I think the optimistic view would be that, yes, probably, but they weren't ready to do that yesterday. Okay. They needed and they needed to have a meeting because they want to get the relationship off to a good start, but they don't have all their ducks lined up yet. A telling comment, I think, will be actually today, today being Wednesday, February 24th, because about an hour from the time we're recording this, there's going to be a White House briefing about the executive order the president's going to sign later this afternoon on supply chain security. And all he's going to do is order a review. So, you know, there won't be immediate consequences. But the review is important because the review and some of the language, I think, at, at the White House press briefing and whatever the president says is going to be revealing. Are we talking about bringing everything back on shore and having U.S. supply chains or are we talking about trusted partnership models, which, you know, the Schultz chair has recommended recently in a paper arguing that it's impossible to bring everything back on shore and it's very expensive and time consuming. And we've got trusted partners, you know, the prime one of which is Canada. So uh, the early signs seem to be that that's what they're going to say. They're going to leave the door open for partnership arrangements with trusted allies. And I think if the Canadians are smart, they'll jump on that and try to take it to the bank, basically. Yeah, look, Buy America is a great bumper sticker, but when it comes to supply chain resilience, if you tried to bring everything back, you'd make resilience worse. I mean, it would seem to me to be almost all downside. Beyond the expense, it, it would take you away from the very objective you've set for yourself. Well, the Biden administration is interested in providing relief to small businesses. And today, they trotted out Brian Deese, who's the head of the Biden's Economic Council at the White House, to talk about, you know, the, the smallest businesses need immediate aid. And that's part of the executive order he's going to sign today, correct? So why wouldn't this be of immediate help to small businesses that we do more cooperation here? Well, I think it would. Yeah. It probably would, but look, the smallest businesses uh, are usually not manufacturers. They're restaurants, they're retail service firms. It's your barbershop or your small diner that are the smallest restaurants. Now, look, I'm all in favor of small business. In fact, new businesses create almost all the net new jobs in the United States. So definitely it's a great focus, but it really doesn't have a lot to do with the broader issues of uh, manufacturing supply chains. So not that it wouldn't be great to have small manufacturers. It's just that's not the way the, the economy operates. And uh, for me, getting the economy opened and running again is probably the best thing we could do for small business. Okay. Well, so it, it sounds like a lot is to be continued here between Biden and Trudeau, and we'll watch out for that. But in the meantime, President Biden and the Koreans, the South Koreans, are in a bit of a kerfuffle over batteries. And this is Bill's favorite topic. So, Bill, tell us what's going on with the battery fight. 
Well, yeah, if, uh, those of you out there that get my column, you, you saw an explication of it. And it's an interesting case. It's not exactly the United States versus Korea, because the combatants are both Korean companies, not American companies. But the United States is going to have to make a decision that will be complicated. And I think it has a lot of implications for a bunch of other trade issues. Basically, you've got one Korean company suing another one. LG is suing SK Innovation for trade secret theft, basically, an IP violation. And we have a law in the United States that says you can't do that. And if the International Trade Commission decides that you did, they have a remedy. And it's sort of a nuclear option. The remedy is they ban the imports of the offending product, which in this case would be battery components. And the uh, commission decided that SK had committed the crime, imposed the penalty, although they included the grace period because there are two major automobile manufacturers, Ford and VW, that have a relationship with SK that are going to be impacted by this decision. So they had a grace period to kind of uh, phase out the, the imports. But the issue is, is interesting because it shows the tension sometimes between trade rules and social goals. You know, the trade rules say you shouldn't steal IP. And if you do, you should pay a price. And it's an important rule. You know, America's competitive edge comes from our IP. And so we have a great interest in protecting it. And this was a case where it was being, not our IP, but the Korean IP was being attacked. But the law and the principle are the same. At the same time, this is a technology that's going to enable the country to convert more quickly to uh, electric vehicles and to get off fossil fuel vehicles. So it's a major climate goal. Uh, this is green tech, basically. And one argument here is the rules may be getting in the way of green tech because the rules are going to you know, make it much more difficult for one battery man manufacturer and Ford and VW to go forward, it helps the other battery manufacturer, obviously. So, you know, the, the dilemma for, and this goes to the president, the president has to sign off in the end, or he, you know, he can change the decision. And what he has to decide is, you know, basically the trade wonks, which is, I think what Scott and I are, would say, you know, the rules are rules and you need to design your, your green tech programs to obey the rules. The environmentalists, and we have a whole project going on at CSIS with where the two groups are talking to each other. We tend to say going green and mitigating climate change and mitigating greenhouse gas emissions is a huge, uh, important goal. And we need to proceed immediately with those programs. And if we need to bend or change the rules to do that, we should do that. So there's this kind of dilemma that's been created between the two. Ideally, there's an answer. I mean, ideally, the rules should be a facilitator, uh, not an obstacle. Uh, and what often happens, and I think Scott is familiar with this, is that when the ITC makes a decision like that, what it really does is push the parties to the bargaining table and they work out a settlement. And the settlement ends up being about money. Basically, the loser pays the winner in order to, to uh, use the technology. I don't know if that's going to happen in this case, but it's one way out of the problem. It's not a happy one, but it's one way. Well, look, this is, this is a trade issue, not a matter for a federal court because of the Section 337 of the Trade Act of 1930, which um, has this IP enforcement provision in it. It's been around for a long time. And it is used in part because it's a lot faster and cleaner for the for the complaining party whose IP is being infringed to go through the administrative law judges at the International Trade Commission uh, rather than file in federal court. It does create some hilarious outcomes. I mean, there was a, there was a 337 case a few years back where the domestic complainant was Samsung 
and the importer was Apple. And so pay no attention to the nationality of the companies or the headquarters uh, arrangements for the companies. It's really about imports and excluding those imports. Look, here's the thing. While I'm sympathetic to the arguments about green tech needing a boost, nothing is better for innovation than a strong intellectual property system because it rewards innovation. You want innovators to be rewarded. The better job you do with that, the more innovation you get. So I'm, I'm a pro-IP guy. And I agree with Bill that, that ultimately, had this been a matter for some federal court, uh, a patent dispute or an IP dispute of any sort, the most likely outcome would be a, a settlement arrangement that would include cross-licensing. This happens every day of the year in industrial goods. So there are some patents like on those on pharmaceuticals or biologics that don't get licensed and provide a, a market advantage for the company that invented the product. But in most commercial uh, industrial goods, there's a, there's a set of patents that, that are of importance, but every company has them and the cross-licensing arrangements allow everybody to survive and you stay out of court. You pay more researchers and fewer lawyers. So I imagine that's what will happen here eventually, but it hasn't happened yet. But can you guys explain why this is so important to America? I mean, first of all, you know, SK Innovation is building two battery plants in Commerce, Georgia. So that's important, right? That's one thing. Big job impact. Second thing is, is that the batteries that they're building here are going to go into things like Ford's 2022 F-150 electric, which is, I believe, Ford's first F-150 electric pickup truck. So this is this is major innovation. You know, so what we're really talking about here is potentially stifling that innovation and also dealing with environmental issues, right? Well, that's true. Look, electric cars have been around uh, since really Thomas Edison. They precede the Model T Ford. So electric powertrains have been around for a long time. Batteries is usually the limitation on them. So advancing the technology of batteries is a great thing. That's really what gets you to a to a, a functional electric car that can replace an internal combustion engine car in most applications. So that's all a good thing. There's certainly a job impact. Somebody has to build the batteries if you're going to put them in vehicles. So I do understand all that. But look, this is a place where technology can get us there a lot faster than if we're not innovating at the rate we're innovating. Somehow I'm having a hard time, you know, seeing my friends who used to drive Ford F-150s, you know, pull up to like plug in and charge their <laughs> their trucks. It just doesn't, it doesn't kind of fit, you know? I mean, that's really a good question. Yeah, I mean, the products that are well, sort of fungible, you know, you go to the marketplace and you you buy celery. There was a Big article in the Post this morning about people not buying celery. But, you know, it's kind of an undifferentiated product. Celery is celery. Cars are not undifferentiated. You know, people have brand preferences. Uh, they have model preferences. And they have a, there's a whole host of specifics about, you know, what kind of sound system does it have? What kind of transmission does it have? How does it operate? And there's a whole history to all these brands. Consumer preference is a big thing. And it'll be interesting to see if, if people who, who historically drive trucks want to drive electric trucks. And I don't know the answer. I mean, on the other hand, my father-in-law drove an F-150 for many, many years. And, you know, it was so big, he could barely park it in the garage. And, you know, I could see him being one of those guys who would certainly plug his truck in. So we'll, we'll have to see. Well, what I can tell you is some of my friends and who are contractors and who, who their pickup truck is not only their vehicle of choice, but it's their office, have moved to more efficient vehicles. It used to be you wanted the biggest V8 engine you could get. 
And now you have massive power from fewer cylinders and sort of smarter engine operating systems. They seem to have adapted very well. So should Biden veto this decision on environmental grounds or and what would the the trade consequences of him doing that be? I wouldn't. I'd have him let it go because I think it's important that we affirm the rules. This is going to come up over and over and again. This is not a an isolated case. It's come up before in other contexts. And, and if your IP is important, and Scott and I have just explained why it's important, you really need to defend the rules because the consequences of not doing so downstream are are devastating. You just encourage people to do exactly what SK has done, which is to you know steal somebody else's secret, hire some hire people away from firms, and 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 copy what they've done, which is not good for innovation. Look, if the decision is is a fair one, if it is the the right decision, let the company sort it out. If I were Biden, he's got sixty days from the day they deliver it to him, and I don't know when they're going to deliver it to him, but I'd wait till near the end to see if the company settle in the interim. That would solve the problem. All right, guys. Finally, today, we have to talk about Hong Kong and its WTO national security dispute. Does the Biden administration have a believable case that labeling Hong Kong exports as made in China, does it have a national security justification? Not in my opinion. I th- frankly, I think it's a ridiculous argument. I mean, what's happened in Hong Kong is appalling. And what's happened in Hong Kong today is even more appalling because they, they are now limiting the last vestiges of, of democracy in the city at, at, at the local level by uh, deciding that in order to be hold these lot of sort of small local public offices, you have to be a quote unquote patriot, which means you have to support the Chinese Communist Party. It really is becoming China. There isn't any mystery about that. Uh, and I think the United States was right in saying that they're not Hong Kong anymore. They're China and we're going to treat them like China. And that's the issue you know, in the WTO, because Hong Kong is a is a separate member and that allows them to bring their the complaint separately. I think the United States made a logical decision. But to argue that our national security is at stake because of the political status of Hong Kong, I think is a real stretch. Uh, and I, it's hard for me to see that particular argument prevailing. I agree. Look, here's the problem. OK, I actually I thought that the, in this case, the Trump administration now reaffirmed by the Biden administration to treat products assembled or labeled from Hong Kong as made in China was the right decision. But defending it at the WTO and using essentially the national security or essential security exception is the mistake. Okay, and it's a mistake because we've talked about GATT Article 20 in the past. And GATT Article 20 is the exception that essentially destroys all the other rules. And the U.S. should not want to get into the habit or create the appearance that we're taking the easy way out by claiming a national security exception, which has been throughout the existence of the GATT, a self-judging exception, because essentially anybody else can claim it and will, thanks to our example. So if you're pro-rules, I think you don't want to use this one. Well, so, I mean, is that that was going to be my next question. Is that the consequence of us continuing to use the national security defense? This is going to come up in multiple contexts. It's come up twice already in the WTO recently. And the U.S. position, the U.S. was not involved in the, in the two cases. One was Russia versus Ukraine. And the other one was, I think, the UAE versus Saudi Arabia or Gutter versus, it was a Middle Eastern case. Uh, so the U.S. wasn't a party, but the U.S. position lost both times in, in the sense that the WTO argued, uh, decided 
the panels decided that, yeah, they can review a country's determination of what's in its national security interest, and they can opine on it, which is directly contrary to what the U.S. has been arguing. Now, in the Russian case, they came up with a, a very clever solution. They first said, yeah, we can decide that. Uh, and then they went ahead and decided that the Russian argument was right and that it really was in their national security interest. So they validated the Russian action. But what it's telling the United States is if you make the national security argument that the WTO has no right to review this, you're going to lose. And we are. And on this one, I think we'll lose on the merits subsequently. Well, look, if the change we made is defensible, then we ought to defend it on the grounds, on the basis on which we made it. Okay, we shouldn't slip in a national security argument just so we don't have to make the case. Let the Chinese come in and explain why Hong Kong is truly independent. Right. See how that goes. So in the end here, does the use of the national security defense, you know, fit with expectations that Biden could repair and lead global institutions that, you know, the ones that Trump eroded our relationships with? Well, over in Geneva, they're picking up a lyric from The Who and saying, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Interesting. Yeah, this is, I'm a little bit sad about this. He started off right. You know, he, he dropped the U.S. objection to Ngozi Onkojo-Iwela as the new director general, which was well received by everybody and was the right thing to do. But earlier this week, they continued to block moving forward on appellate body appointments using the same argument that the Trump administration has, had used. And this is another example, I think, of making uh, the, the same argument. So I'm a little bit discouraged. I hope this is the product of Catherine Tai not being in there yet. And I hope that once she comes in, there will be a uh, more thoughtful approach to the whole thing. And they'll develop a more comprehensive strategy as to how to approach the WTO. Well, I can tell you this, gentlemen, no matter what, the trade guys will not be fooled again. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you for these wonderful insights today. I appreciate it. We'll see you next week. Same trade time, same trade channel. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.